hppodcraft.com. Hello, ghoul friends. This is Chad Pfeiffer at HP Podcraft, Strange Studies of Strange Stories. And I'm Chris Lackey. This is our bonus episode for May. We've been doing swords and sorceries, stories all month, but uh, we wanted to take a jump back into science fiction for an episode. And we're going to combine it with a little science fact. Those who listen to the comments show will know that we received a note recently from Mason Starr, who operates cameras on Mars. Uh, I'm sure there's a better descriptor for this job. And why don't we let him lay it out because he's been kind enough to join us for this bonus episode. Welcome, Mason Starr. Hi, Chad. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on. Woohoo! Now, could you please <laughs> give us a better job description than what Chad Lamley proclaimed? <laughs> yes. Of course. Of course. Uh, so my official job title is Missions Operations Specialist. So there are different missions out there that I worked on. I've worked on the Curiosity rover the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and most recently, the Mars Perseverance Rover. My specialty is I operate cameras on all of those spacecraft. So I've operated uh, the mast cams on the rover, rovers, mm -hmm. the CTX and Marcy instruments on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Wow, and so I'm so curious how you fall into a job like that. Obviously, you are interested in space exploration, but you were just saying to me before we started to record that this is your your first gig out of undergrad. So did you just apply through LinkedIn or how did this work? Yeah, that's correct. So I um, <laughs> I got really lucky in undergrad. I had a, uh, there was a professor in my department and she did research using uh, mass cam data. So data acquired by the mass cam instrument. So I worked with her, Dr. Melissa Rice. I uh, had got lots of experience working with this mass cam data. And in my senior year, I got this opportunity to come down and help calibrate the mass cam Z instruments before they were mounted on the Perseverance rover. Mm -hmm. So I came down and did that and I met the right people and now here I am. So instruments you were calibrating and working with are now on the surface of Mars. That's correct. Uh, you may have been seeing lots of images, videos yes. of the helicopter flight in the news recently. Yes. Those videos and images were acquired by my team. Nice. That is so amazing. <laughs> well, I, you know, and I had said in the email, sorry for the bad pun, but I was really starstruck when you reached out. It's so amazing to me that I get to speak with somebody who's working on this project. Chris and I are very 20th century guys. We work in an old art form and we cover even older literature. Uh, <laughs> so to be able to, to talk to somebody who's touching the future is really amazing. I wanted to kick things off, though, talking about the Martian day. I made a crack on our Clark Ashton Smith show, uh, Yo Vambis, when a protagonist said, I only have a few Martian hours left to live. You scolded me, made me cry a little when you wrote a, a note. But there's nothing incredible about that. Super aggressive, kind of hurtful. Uh, but no, you're actually living on a Martian day as part of your work. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what's involved in, in the Martian soul, I think you call it? Yeah, that's right. So when the Perseverance rover landed on the surface on February 18th, we immediately switched on to Mars time. So I've been living on Mars time for the last couple months. It's tricky. It's really tricky to live on uh, the timeline of another planet when you're on Earth. The way it works is a Martian day is 24 hours and 40 minutes, roughly. So just slightly longer than an Earth day. But if I'm living my life on Mars time, it means that one week I'm waking up at kind of a normal human wake up time. And then as the month goes on, I uh, each day my schedule moves 40 minutes. So I wake up 40 minutes later every single day. So the next week I'm waking up at noon and then I'm waking up at 6 p.m. and then I'm waking up at midnight and that cycle continues. 
Oh, wow. And do you find that this is giving you any kind of special Martian insight into humans? <laughs> um, it had, has made me realize that we adhere to certain timelines across the world. Mm -hmm. Everyone in their different time zone. It's been really interesting to live in everybody's time zone. I get to live in every single time zone around the world over the course of a month. I see that, yeah. I want to just make sure Mars has got low gravity. It's a little bit bigger than the moon. Is that right? Uh, Mars is... Bigger than the moon, smaller than Earth. The gravity is less than that of Earth, but greater than that of the moon. When you're doing the planning of, of these types of things, I know that when Ingenuity, the helicopter that was on Mars, that's like the first flying vehicle, it has a, a thinner atmosphere, but it has less gravity. So how did, do you know how that factors into them building these things? The atmosphere is very thin. That's the biggest issue. When you have a rotorcraft on Earth, they have a lot of atmosphere to, to use to to fly up in the air. Um, mm -hmm. But on Mars, it's very, very thin. The way they solve that issue is that the helicopter is really big. On the videos that you've been seeing, it looks very tiny, but that's because it's about 70 meters away. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, it's actually about four feet from one tip of the uh, heli blade to the other. Oh, wow. So it's very, it's pretty large. And then it spins really fast. The blades rotate at 2,400 RPM, mm -hmm. which is really, really fast. And it's also incredibly light. When all those factors combine, they are able to fly in such a such a thin atmosphere. Now that's another thing about the rover too, that is I, I thought it was, you know, maybe three or four feet long, but it's it's huge. It's like the size oh, of a yeah. car. That's something that most people are very surprised to learn. It feels like maybe if you'd sent up like a chimp to hang off the bottom of it or some kind of just something so we could get a frame of reference. I don't know. A banana for scale. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just brainstorming. I mean, anytime you guys want me to come down and shoot, shoot some ideas around with it, I'm available <laughs> for that kind of thing. So Lovecraft was thinking about the effects of the new planet Pluto. He was a science nerd. He didn't have the, the math skills to become a scientist, but he really wanted to be. But I'm curious to what drew you to Lovecraft. Wait, do you know who Lovecraft is? Of course. Of course I know who Lovecraft is. I've listened to you guys tell me, and I'm slowly working my way through his complete works. Wow. Um, it was a pretty recent find for me. My mom actually got me the complete works, and I started uh, working through it. And thought, man, this is really difficult to read. I wonder if there's a podcast that could help me out. Uh, That's when I found you guys. But I'm drawn to it because we face so many horrors in our day-to-day -day life. <laughs> yeah. And it's really nice to replace those day-to-day -day life horrors with cosmic horror that's so much yep. greater in scale. I agree. When I read the news, I feel bad. And when I read about interdimensional monsters and the insignificance of humanity, I feel good. It's almost reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I find, and, and you know, a lot of folks who end up working in space exploration fields and STEM are also fans of science fiction and literature. Do you find this among your peers? Oh, yes. Uh, I work with a lot of diehard Star Wars fans. Star Wars fans? Star Wars fans. Uh -huh. They dress up and they cosplay their characters and go to children's hospitals and and whatnot, that's great. I also work with a lot of people who just love the older sci-fi stuff. Honestly, a little bit before my time. Sure. I'm, uh, I'm pretty, I'm 24 years old, so I'm a little right. out of the loop on the older stuff. Wow. But I have you two to tell me about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whether you want to hear about it or not. <laughs> are there a lot of people that you work with that are into Manimal? <laughs> There's, I imagine there are dozens of them. <laughs> 
dozens of us into Manimal. I like that even in the complimentary imagined, uh, t- you know, totally hy- hyperbolic, it's only dozens. It's still only dozens. In the, when the sky's the limit, there's still only a couple of dozen Manimal fans. <laughs> so I'm curious about the actual camera work. Are you staring through something and moving it around with levers? What is it actually, or are you calibrating it for an automated sort of a series of snaps? What, what, how's it work? So when we're doing rover operations, we have to plan in advance quite a bit. The light time from Earth to Mars is pretty significant. It takes a couple minutes depending on where um, Mars and Earth are relative to each other at the time. But it definitely takes at least a couple minutes for the light to get from Earth to Mars. And for that reason, we can't send signals with, you know, a remote control and drive the rover around with a joystick. It, It just wouldn't work. So what we do is we plan our activities for the rover while the rover is asleep at night. Mm-hmm. And then we send those instructions to the rover. It wakes up, it receives the instructions, it does everything that it need, that we told it to do during the day. And then when it goes to sleep at night, it sends uh, all of the data that it's acquired back to us. And we use that to inform our next day of planning. Mm. We plan rover activities one day at a time. I was curious if aesthetics play into what you photograph at all, because I think that it's so important that people are seeing images of the space exploration and they're getting excited about this so that as a civilization, we're behind this. So much of that, there's a little bit of advertising involved, really, in saying, look at what we're doing. So does that drive the conversation about what you're going to be photographing and showing the public? Oh, yeah. We, we often talk about there are certain products that we acquired for public engagement or specifically saying, you know, oh, this would be great for the public to have. When I'm on shift on a given day working the cameras, it's it's really nice to know that the images that I'll be acquiring are being sent out to the public and people will be able to appreciate and get a little joy from what they're seeing and a little wonder, hopefully. It's pretty tricky to get a quality image. Uh, the, a lot goes into it. It's not like your phone where you can point your camera at something and p- press a button and acquire a pretty decent image. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we have to manually set focus ourselves. So there's mm-hmm. uh, there's an autofocus algorithm, but it's not quite as advanced as what's in your phone. That, yeah, that would be interesting because if you had to adjust it, it would take, however, four or five minutes to get to here, the image would have to get here. And then from here, you would have to be able to go, oh no, then I'm gonna adjust it. And then another four to five minutes for it to get back. But that's not even how you do it, right? You you have to wait until the end of the day to look at what happened and then make adjustments. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when the rover's on the move, it drives to a new location and it acquires images in a 360, uh, 360 degrees all around it with another set of cameras called the nav cams. And these are a little lower resolution than what I, than the mass cams that I use. Mm-hmm. And so we use this nav cam uh, information to inform where we're going to point our higher resolution cameras. So everybody logs on for the day, for a day of uh, planning on Mars. There's usually anywhere from 50 to 100 people involved, scientists, instrument operators, other important rover personnel. And we all work together to figure out what the rover is going to do on a given day. And the scientists will advocate for certain things. They'll say, I, I, hey, I think that rock is really interesting. We need a picture of that. And um, if everybody agrees, then uh, my team puts together some code that tells the rover to take a picture of that rock. At the end of the day, we send all of our instructions up to the rover. The rover does what it does while we're asleep. 
Mm-hmm. And then we get the data down in the morning and we see how it went. That's so amazing. Now, do I have to ask, have you had any spooky occurrences while operating the camera? Do you feel that uh, you've seen something and said, wait a minute, that definitely looks like something from John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. We got to go in on that. I don't know why that movie came to mind. <laughs> Well, all the, you know, all the spooks that I get are from things going wrong. Things do go wrong, often not catastrophically, but, but things do go wrong. Instruments do sometimes do things they aren't supposed to. Mm. Uh, there have been events in the past on the Curiosity rover where cosmic rays come down from space and zap the rover computer and sends it into safe mode. Any number of things can go wrong. And sometimes wow. when you're looking at the data coming in in the morning, you see something that you're not expecting or you see some warning messages and your heart just skips a beat and you know, oh no, this is going to be a tough day. Now, oh. what, what would it, I just, this is just curiosity on my part, but what would he, what do you think it would take to kind of create a little bit of a sensation? Like maybe we photograph something up there, you know, just between us here, like maybe we put something in the camera lens or maybe there's a little, <laughs> we see a little apparition or something. I mean, what would that cost? What would that cost Chris is what I'm trying to figure out. How much money would I have to pay to get a, like a little ghost image on the camera. You, how much do I have to pay you? Yeah, it has to come from you, otherwise nobody's gonna believe it. Chris, he already ran a Photoshop Mars scam in the 90s. I am unviable. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Oh. That's what we wanted to hear, Mason. This was a test. That was a test and you you passed. Yeah. A plus. Oh, thank you. Now, we're talking about these errors that happen, or have you ever been concerned that uh, Perseverance might become sentient and decide not to send you back messages? Is that ever something that's <laughs> come up? The hardware on the rover itself is quite old. Your phone is more technologically advanced than the rover is. I'm more worried about a smartphone becoming uh, sentient than the oh, rover. Right. Although it is um, really easy for us to anthropomorphize the rover, give it a personality, especially in- with its relationship with ingenuity. There are a lot of memes flying around about <laughs> the relationship between these two spacecraft. Well, it has to happen immediately. You know, I've been watching videos of people helping out these delivery robots when they fall over in the city as they're trying to get their packages. They're like, hey, little guy, you need help. You know, immediately we do it. And I imagine that the relationship that you guys have there, that must be happening. Oh, of course, of course. If anything's wrong, we are concerned and we will do everything we can to fix it. Like emotionally, you're invested in in what's going on. (laughs) We are very emotionally invested. The landing, I don't know if any of you saw the streaming of of the landing of uh, the rover flying down through the upper atmosphere and deploying its parachute and its heat shield and Mm -hmm. using the sky crane to rocket itself down onto the surface. But all of us were really grinding our teeth and biting our nails during that gist, praying and hoping that everything goes well. It was so exciting to watch. Yeah, I was tuned in the whole time. Now I've got some questions for you on on protocol here. Okay, so like sure. you're you're looking at the footage that the Perseverance took. You see something in the distance. It looks like maybe a structure of some kind. It doesn't look like a natural occurrence. Mm. What happens in there? Do you report to NASA? Do you have to tell the government? Like, what what are the protocols of something like that? You're talking about if we if we run into a mountains of madness situation. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. The higher ups. Certainly above me, the um, the leaders of the project. The project is how we refer to the rover operations and the mm-hmm. just everyone that has to do with the rover. It's called the project. So the, the project higher ups would definitely take care of that. <laughs> and I would uh, I would have nothing to do in that situation. I, I don't really know. I would love to know what would happen 
if we um, discovered something like that. Because, I mean, obviously that would be insane if there was something. Would you tell anybody or would you just keep it to yourself? Uh, we would have to tell people uh, uh, eventually. It might be uh, worked through the, the pipeline for a little bit. But in the end, you know, this is a government project and mm -hmm. taxpayers are paying for this. So the information is uh, belongs to the public. I heard the key word there, though, Chris. He said eventually. So there eventually. is a little period of time. Yeah, but where he it could would be 30 years. <laughs> now, I, I got a question. This might be out of your area of expertise, but I saw recently in the news they converted some of the CO2 into oxygen on Mars. That is another instrument team called MOXIE. Mm -hmm. Extremely impressive. A very big moment um, oh, for the yeah. team and, and for all of us. For, I mean, it's going to make things a lot easier because obviously they can make breathable air on Mars, but even more important, they can make oxygen for rocket fuel because it takes such an insane amount of oxygen to ignite rocket fuel that they can make the ships lighter to get to Mars and then be able to fill up on oxygen on Mars and then go back. But I didn't understand that there was so much carbon dioxide on Mars's in Mars's atmosphere. I was wondering about terraforming about you know making mars a breathable atmosphere isn't there certain types of bacteria or algae or life forms that can take carbon dioxide and turn it into oxygen and could they conceivably put that kind of bacteria on the planet and naturally terraform it you know not use giant machines but just have these plants that could live there and then they would pump out oxygen this may be way out of your area of expertise but i was just throwing it out there because i'm interested in it <laughs> i mean it, it's certainly a possibility there's the colonization mar of mars is a, is a big topic right and with spacex in the news so often it's it's on a lot of people's minds to be honest, it's not really my area of expertise about how we'd go about doing that. Sure. In my personal opinion, we need to, before we worry about colonizing Mars, we need to take care of the planet that we have. It's uh, perfectly set up to support life. Before we worry about changing an entire planet to suit our needs, we yes. should just try to take care of the one that we have here. I agree. Absolutely agree with that. <laughs> you know, speaking of our planet and the other one, though, I, so this is one of the things that I think of as it's a spooky feeling, or it must be, to know that you are making decisions and then 180 million miles away that those are being acted upon. It definitely is a little spooky. Sometimes sometimes we go out at night and look up at Mars. We can even time it out. We know what time things are happening on Mars. So we can walk out at night on Earth, look up at Mars, see it, and I, I can say, you know what? I know exactly what the rover is doing right now. Right now, it's driving along to its next destination, or right now it's reaching down with its arm and it's drilling into the soil. It's so exciting to know that something so, so far away is happening. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it. It's, it's the craziest thing. And especially because we live in these older worlds of science fiction where these authors are sort of speculatively trying to figure out where we're going. And and gosh, here we are right on the cusp of it. We're ma we're taking action on Mars. We're driving helicopters around out there. I mean, I just never lose my sense of wonder about it. And I also never lose my respect for it because, you know, what I hear a lot of people say all the time is we go, America can do this and this. We landed on the moon. Well, our scientists kind of did that for us and we're all living off the credit for it right now. You know, I mean, <laughs> that we need to continue to support these programs and to uh, to get people interested in this because 
It's just so exciting culturally. This is what I always try to convince people. Why They say, why are we spending all this money on NASA and space exploration? Well, don't you want to be in the culture that, that gets to learn about the cosmos? I mean, this is the most interesting stuff we could possibly be doing. We're all extremely lucky to be living in this uh, period of uh, human history. For me, the idea of terraforming and making Mars a place where people can live, that's just for the the grand scale of humanity is just not having all the eggs in one basket. If we if we had humans living on Mars and humans living on Earth, if one thing happened to one planet or the other, there'd still be humans. By the way, Chris's line of questioning is absolutely what you would expect from somebody who's been quarantined with their family for a year. <laughs> so I want to look... Now, if I say wanted to go have an apartment on Mars for a while, is this something that I could do? <laughs> Uh, speaking of, my six-year-old son, Finian, he is an aspiring space scientist, brilliant little guy. I said, hey, I'm talking to this fella. He works one of the cameras on, on the rover, Perseverance, and he's he knows it. We've watched a lot of the videos. We talk about space a lot, read a lot of books. So I said, do you want to ask him something? So this is his question. How happy were you when the Mars rover Perseverance landed successfully? Hi, Finian. Good question. I was so so, 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 so happy, as was uh, the rest of the team. And I'm sure everybody that was watching the live stream as well. That period of uncertainty is just keeps you in such suspense. You know, it's it's hands off. The, the landing is 100%. We can't pull any strings there. We can't change no. anything. So yeah. it's, it's all automated and we're just waiting to see what happens. And when it finally pays off, these years and years of work that people have been doing, to get this um, mission sent. When it finally pays off, we are so, so, so happy. So on a scale of one to 10, you would say about a six? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say an 11. That was definitely yes, the high okay. point of my quarantine experience. That's a, that is a peak experience, my friend. It's all downhill from now, you know, from there. <laughs> hey, this is, so we've talked about a lot of things. I'm sure you feel a lot of similar questions to what we've asked you. What if you find a monster out there, et cetera? What do you, what do you never get to tell people about your job or uh, your thoughts about space exploration that they just don't ask about it? People often don't ask about the Perseverance team as a whole or the um, the team behind any spacecraft. When a spacecraft is sent up, there's a whole operations team, hundreds and hundreds of people that are making that spacecraft uh, function and telling it what to do. It's not, um, it doesn't just get up there and do everything automatically. There, We have to uh, instruct it and make these important decisions that uh, a robot can't make for itself. We have to make these decisions. It's a worldwide effort. We need tons of different perspectives. There are instrument teams in France and all over Europe. And it's so interesting when I can sign on for the day and we are talking to people all over the world and we're all collaborating with this one cause. It's truly amazing that that happens every day and it doesn't get talked about because in a media environment, it's uh, much easier to keep people keyed in when we're talking about our disputes in the world. And obviously they are major and it's a lot to reckon with, but the fact that there's a layer above that where folks are just being scientists and talking to each other and they don't care about background and they don't care about where you are is, you know, speaking about the effect of space travel on our planet, can't beat that. Right, and this is, this is a good reason why so, space travel is for everybody, right? Yeah. Regardless of where you are, regardless of who you are, everybody is excited 
when they see a video of a helicopter flying on Mars. Show me someone who isn't. I mean, I remember too, when I was watching the, the landing, how everybody was all into Swati Mohan. There are so many people on the project that I don't know personally. It's such a shame, you know, if the, if the quarantine hadn't happened, uh, we would all be in the same room working together on for these daily operations. But uh, due to coronavirus, we've all been working from home. And that has been a big, big challenge. We've never we've never done that before. For all missions so far, the post landing uh, time is is so important to really get all the science in that we can. We need to make use of every single minute, which is why we live on Mars time. And we've always had people in the same room all working together. But uh, due to coronavirus, we've all been working from home. And that is a definite challenge. But we've we've overcome that hurdle and we're we're making it work. I imagine that a lot of folks on the team come from a variety of different disciplines as well. And maybe they didn't know that they were headed towards that field. Uh, For example, I podcasting didn't exist, obviously, 20 years ago. And when I was getting my education, I didn't know that I might end up in a field like this. And so I think that when people are considering a career in in this field, they might think there's a specific space travel program that they got to go after. But I'm sure you're talking to people who are sociologists and people who are psychologists and people who have all sorts of different varied specialties. All different aspects of physical science are represented. We have chemists and uh, there are astrobiologists uh, that work on instruments that are designed to detect biosignatures. There are a lot of geologists. There are a lot of geologists who Um, are interested in rocks and they don't know that they'll end up studying planetary science and Mm -hmm. rocks on other planets. I've noticed lately that there are a lot of geologists just in the world because I've been getting in trouble for making fun of them for tasting that planet in Star Wars. (laughs) The geologists came after me. You know, we taste rocks all the time. That is kind of how we classify some of these. We do taste rocks. My young son, he's only six, so he's not quite ready for a university education. But if he wanted to get into space study and exploration, what kind of classes would he need to take? If you are interested in studying space and space exploration and working with uh, space in general, You'll definitely have to be up to snuff on your math. And then you can really, if any of the sciences stand out to you as something you like, Mm -hmm. go with that. If you like chemistry, go with that. If you like biology, study that. If you like engineering, go with that. You can really really take your pick there because we need all sorts of people to make these missions successful. There's quite a few people that are astronauts. I don't think he wants to necessarily be an astronaut because space is a bit scary. But there's a lot of astronauts that used to be marine biologists, people that did undersea exploration, because there's obviously a crossover with the two. I'm surprised to learn that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a you're sort of an athlete when you're an astronaut. You know, that's a very physically demanding job and mentally demanding. I can't even watch when they these things that are about actual colonization where they try like the expanse. Obviously, it's science fiction, but they try to be a little closer to what people would have to be dealing with. I say, nay, I want to be here on Earth, you know? Oh, my God. It's horrific. Looking at Mason's photos. I no thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Space is a hard place to be. It's difficult. Mm. Humans aren't really meant to be in space. 
No. No, and we've we've evolved to match this environment, which is why I do think it's important to say when you are talking about space exploration, like, hey, let's make sure we keep this place up to snuff as well. Because in those dystopic science fiction movies, it is always that Earth is either left to the very wealthy people or it's a total crap hole, you know? <laughs> we need to get off fast. Yeah, I hope there's a way that Earth can be for everybody. This is this is our home and it should be for everybody. And, and it's our spaceship, really. It is our spaceship flying through the universe. So did you grow up playing Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of thing? You had mentioned that maybe that you were a bit of a role-playing nerd as well. I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons since I was 10 years old. Yes. So that's really the background that we were trying to get to. If you want to be, a, if you want to work in the space program, D&D. <laughs> yeah. Definitely play some. There are also all sorts of awesome space uh, role-playing games out there that uh, you can check out if you want to make some science fiction of your own. I've been playing Starfinder recently. And there's another yes. great one called Scum and Villainy, where you, uh, players play outlaws on a spaceship and they do uh, all sorts of heists and smuggling yeah. operations. And I'm looking at it right now. It's on my bookshelf. Are you? Oh, there's one more question. Are you guys uh, collecting audio on Mars? Is there anything going on there? Oh, this is very exciting. I'm glad you asked this. I think I'm allowed to say this. It, it should be fine. By the time you hear this, it should be fine. Okay. Uh, so the third heli flight on Mars we will be recording audio. This is done with the SuperCam instrument, which is recording audio concurrent to the MassCam-Z instrument, which is recording video, and that is concurrent with the helicopter flying. So there's lots of timing that goes involved that that goes on there. It's actually quite tricky to get everything to line up, but it should be amazing. I, I think we're all really excited to hear what it sounds like. Oh, oh man, I am. And if it is something that you do release to the public folks, you're hearing it right now. <laughs> I will have, I will have worked it into the sound bed because I've been excited to get some of that sweet Mars audio. Well, Mason, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We're space nuts, Chad and I. We love this stuff and we want to thank you for sharing all of your expertise and knowledge with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been lovely. It's great to meet you. And we're definitely going to have you on when we talk about one of these science fiction stories. Thanks again for tuning in, folks. Uh, this was our bonus episode for this month. We're going to be back at you with more stories soon. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Mason Starr. And you've been listening to HP Podcraft. Strange studies of strange stories. HPPodcraft.com. Podcraft.com. <laughs>